Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content to Classroom, a podcast created and produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, where we connect expert analysis on a specific topic related to social studies and then supplement that analysis with guidance from master teachers on how to apply it in the classroom. I'm your host, Sam Futrell, and we are so glad that you are joining us. Today, we are partnering with the 9-11 Memorial and Museum in New York. As you probably already know, Saturday is the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, which resulted in the death of 2,996 people, over 25,000 injuries, and the start of the United States War on Terror. It also resulted in the war in Afghanistan as well, which has received much attention in the news of late with the Taliban's takeover, the bombings of the Kabul airport, and the evacuation of Americans and Europeans from the country. I was joined on today's episode to discuss all of this, as well as how to best remember 9-11 in our classrooms by the Vice President of Education at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, Megan Jones, and the Assistant Director of Education, Jennifer Lagasse. They provide a wealth of resources on teaching 9-11 in the classroom, and we encourage you to check out the episode notes for links to some of their favorites, including an upcoming interactive webinar on 9-11 that you can access for free with your classes this upcoming Friday. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Here is Megan Jones and Jennifer Legassi. All right, everyone. Well, welcome to Content to Classroom. We are here today with Megan Jones and Jen Lagasse from the 9-11 Museum and Memorial up in New York City. Welcome, Jen and Megan. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Um, We are so thrilled that you could take time out of your extremely busy schedules to come and join us over Zoom today. And I thought just before we get started, um, if we could just hear from both of you, um, and maybe Megan, if you want to start, just a little bit about yourself and your work at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Sure. So I am the uh, Vice President of Education Programs at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, and I started working um, at the museum just over seven and a half years ago. So my first day, I actually was at work in a hard hat and boots because the museum wasn't open yet. And, um, you know, on my first day, we went down to the, the job site and I saw installation of artifacts and saw empty classrooms with bare walls and, and thought, oh, wow, you know, this is really the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, but also a very important um, responsibility that, you know, that I have here. Um, But before that, I was um, a high school teacher, Uh, feels like such a long time ago, but I taught uh, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, and about six months of um, 7th grade before I transitioned into museum education in Washington, D.C. So I actually worked at the National Archives and then the Supreme Court uh, before moving up to New York for for this job. Wow, from seventh grade all the way to the Supreme Court. (laughs) That is quite a journey. (laughs) I love it. I love hearing how everybody gets their jobs. I think it's just so fascinating. We get asked about that a lot, and it's so interesting just because it's, as you'll hear from Jen too, it's often a very interesting journey into the work that we do. Yeah, yeah. So Jen, what about you? How did you come to the museum, and uh, what sort of work do you do there now? So in my current role, I'm the Assistant Director of Education Programs. So I work directly under Megan to oversee the operations of our school teacher youth and family programming. Um, So prior to joining the staff, which I also, my first day, which was a few months after Megan, I got the same email from her about showing up in uh, clothes that I was willing to get dirty and closed-toed shoes, which is the strangest first day email I've ever gotten for a job, but makes sense because, you know, the museum still wasn't quite open yet. Um, Before that, I was an educator at the New York Historical Society um, for several years, and I taught inquiry-based programs all over New York City. But my journey to museum education was a really windy, interesting one. I actually moved to New York City to do graduate school in the performing arts 
And something about that skill set of needing to be in front of a group of people you've never met before and connect with them and communicate with them. There's actually a huge overlap in education and especially in cultural institutions between people who have performing arts training and those that find their way into education because those skills are so transferable. Um, and so now, yeah, Megan and I have actually worked together for over seven years teaching this really, really challenging, but really important content. Yeah, I think it's so cool that both of you are on the ground floor for all of um, everything with the museum. And I feel like it probably makes it even more special to you, just what you do every day, just having been there kind of at the inception um, of the memorial and museum. So uh, I think that's really, really amazing. Um, so we are going to be talking about 9-11 today. Obviously it's the 20th anniversary. And uh, that means that you all are extremely busy right now. Um, but we have students in our classrooms and especially in Virginia, you know, I think we're a little bit more removed um, from, you know, 9-11, uh, even though obviously uh, we're adjacent to DC, the Pentagon and everything. But, you know, we have students in our classrooms right now who were not born. Um, when 9-11 happened, even though I think to the rest of us, it's such a prominent event in American history. Um, so I kind of feel like maybe the best place to start would be, Megan, if you could just sort of take us through what happened on September 11th, um, like maybe from just a basic overview of start to finish, what actually happened on that day? Sure, and I appreciate that question because I think it's very important um, when talking to students, particularly as you mentioned, with no memory of 9-11, that you start with a baseline of facts about what happened that day. Um, and that's exactly what we do actually in our museum programs with students. Um, so 9-11 is shorthand for the um, coordinated terrorist attacks that were carried out by Al-Qaeda, which is an Islamist extremist group that occurred on the morning of September 11th, 2001. Um, on that morning, 19 terrorists from Al-Qaeda hijacked four commercial airliners, so four commercial planes, deliberately crashing two of them into the upper floors of the North and South Towers of the World Trade Center. And a third plane um, went into uh, the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, as you mentioned, um, just on the other side of the river from DC. Now the Twin Towers ultimately collapsed because the damage sustained from the impact of those planes and the fires that resulted after that. And then after learning about the other attacks, passengers on the fourth hijacked flight, which was flight 93, they were able to um, come together discuss their options, and they decided to fight back and ultimately took control of the plane, which was unfortunately crashed into an empty field um, in Western Pennsylvania, which um, in Shanksville, which is about 20 minutes by air from Washington, DC. And according to the 9-11 Commission report, the fourth intended target was believed to be the US Capitol. So those passengers prevented that plane from reaching Washington, DC. Um, so in total, the attacks that I described actually only spanned 102 minutes, which if you think about it is less than the length of an average movie. And as a result of the attacks, um, unfortunately 2,977 people from 93 nations were killed on that morning. Yeah, I think when you break it down like that, it's just, you know, it's such an important place to start because really that gives students just an attainable sort of picture of what actually happened. Um, and I'm wondering maybe now is a okay time to ask why the World Trade Center? What, um, like, I think that's something that a lot of our students really ask, why the World Trade Center? Sure, and it's a, it's a common question that we hear as well. And the targets were selected very sp for specific reasons. And the World Trade Center, you know, was a complex, the center of our economic uh, life in the United States. So it represented the US economic power. And so Al Qaeda felt that if they attacked the World Trade Center, it would leave this lasting impact or impression that would then ultimately result in the United States pulling out of their support of governments in the Middle East that they felt were 
um, upholding ideas that were not true to their strict interpretation of Islam. So in other words, looking for those symbolic targets. So it would make sense to look at Arlington, Virginia, right at the Pentagon. It's the center of the military, military strength. Then you have the World Trade Center, the center of economic strength. And then again, looking to the Capitol, also at, you know, attacking the Capitol building. So that's why the World Trade Center was one of the buildings that was targeted that morning. Yeah, and I think it's important to really denote the how calculated this attack was and how um, strategic it was and how it was also, you know, metaphoric in some ways as well, obviously with like September 11th being 9-11, 9-1-1, like in the United States, um, but also, you know, attacking these symbols of, uh, of economic uh, output in the United States, economic trade, economic power, but also political power in the United States. So Jen, I'm wondering if you could take us through what were some of the central causes for this attack? Why did Al-Qaeda um, launch this attack and then sort of maybe take us through some resources that you all have at the museum relating to that? Sure. And um, by posing that question, you've kind of waded into something that is central to 9-11 education, which is that there's not a single facet of the story that's not complicated. So that is a huge, huge thing that teachers face. Um, for the purposes of the museum, we only have so much wall space, you have to ask this question about where do you start the story? And because the 9-11 attacks were carried out by Al-Qaeda, which is founded by Osama bin Laden, it's helpful to look at where Osama bin Laden came into uh, contact with Western ideas and where he formed sort of his ideas and when Al-Qaeda was founded. So a useful place to start can actually be the Soviet-Afghan war, right? So, you know, in 1978, there was a coup in Afghanistan and they had a centrist government that was overthrown by a government that had a much more communist bent, which of course, um, was supported by the Soviet Union. And now we're wading into Cold War tensions. So that government really didn't have that much popular support from the populace in Afghanistan. And a lot, a loose coalition of really diverse groups sort of rebelled against that. And they kind of become under the banner, the Mujahideen, uh, those that are rebelling against this um, communist government in Afghanistan. So on one side, you have the Soviet Union that invades Afghanistan to support that government. And on the other side, you have the US who is funneling support to the Mujahideen. Um, and it does kind of end up to be this aching stalemate that does eventually come to an end, right? Just as we're exiting the 80s. But during that time, Osama bin Laden is in Afghanistan, is witnessing this, is uh, participating. And this is the time near the end of the Soviet-Afghan war that he actually forms Al-Qaeda, which translates to the base. So this is directly where that organization comes from, is out of the Soviet-Afghan war. And uh, Osama bin Laden sort of sees an opportunity for Al-Qaeda to establish itself militarily. Uh, that's a difficult word to say, but to establish themselves in that way um, during the Gulf War, which follows close behind, you know, making the argument that the Afghan Arabs and the Mujahideen should be those protecting Muslim holy lands, not influences from the West. Most particularly, his ire is, of course, directed at the United States because he views them as the most powerful pillar upholding these Western ideals that, as Megan said, are in direct conflict with his very strict and fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. So, this is where we get that conflict right, that leads to the embassy bombings and the attack on the USS Cole that occur in the 90s that are precursors to 9-11. Um, and this is where Osama bin Laden starts to formulate this idea that if he launches a shocking enough attack, that is what will expel the United States from this portion of the world. Um, and I will say another piece of the 9-11 attacks is that U.S. intelligence agencies had Osama bin Laden on their radar during this time, but there was a policy in place that um, in the commission report they talk about as a Department of Justice policy that was kind of misinterpreted, they say, that essentially created something called the wall. So prior to 9-11, intelligence agencies are not collaborating with each other. They're not sharing information. They're being protective, right? So every agency has a tiny little piece of the puzzle 
but unless they all come together, they don't see the full plot forming. So this is actually something that has radically changed post 9-11, a way in which the world is markedly safer, is that now we have all sorts of joint terrorism task force and we have this emphasis on interagency cooperation. Um, and yeah, in terms of resources, we actually have a temporary exhibit right now called Revealed the Hunt for Bin Laden, which dives into not just 9-11, but the, the sort of his activities before and after. And a lot of what I've just said is a part of a lesson plan called Warning Signs of an Attack. And if you go to our website and hover over the Learn tab, you're going to see lesson plans as one of the categories. So we do have, it's multimedia. It includes all the embedded video clips, vocabulary, everything you need to sort of teach a little mini lesson on based on what I sort of just shared. Awesome. And we can definitely link that in our show notes too, so that everybody can just go right there directly. Um, this may be super far reaching and you both can tell me that I'm completely wrong, but when you were talking about um, Osama bin Laden's sort of rise to power and how it sort of really was born out of the Soviet-Afghan war and seeing the United States sort of make their presence known in um, the Middle East and uh, really occupying territories that Al-Qaeda did not want them in, that almost seems to me it's very similar to like Hitler's rise to power in Germany and not in such a totalitarian way where he's able to obviously take control of the majority majority um, political party in Germany, but in the sense that there is like this resentment that is taking place and a particular group of people that are being isolated and accused for causing harm to the natives there. Is there any sort of parallel or have you all ever looked at that at all? Just because I think to our students, World War II is so much more familiar maybe than like some of this stuff is. Well, I will say my my immediate thought is in terms of this process we see historically of, you know, a group having a deeply held grievance that they then directed another group that that sort of resonates with me, but the difficulty with Osama bin Laden versus a traditional war, which you've actually hooked into an interesting thing, is that we are no longer fighting state actors. Osama bin Laden is not the head of a government or a country. It's not like Germany, you know, Germany can surrender at the end of a war. How do you, Osama bin Laden is long dead, yet his ideals persist. So a way that it's very different from World War II is that we are now engaged with a war on an idea versus in a belief system versus a war against a state actor. And in so many ways that makes the conflict a lot more difficult and messy. But I do think you see um, charismatic, powerful leaders leveraging animosity from one group to another. I think that's something that we just see repeated throughout human history. But that for me is sort of, I think where the similarity would end. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I like the way that you put that, that this is almost a war on an idea um, rather than a war on a particular state. And so, say, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but to, the, to that point, it also differs in the sense that it, there, it's not bound by land borders and territory because Al-Qaeda, you know, the base, the idea is there are networks around the globe. So there's a very, you know, there at the time there was a very active network in, in Africa. You know, this is not just happening in the Middle East. The idea was to have this base that could then have networks and satellites. So again, you're not fighting a traditional war in the sense of land borders, which to Jen's point makes it that much more complicated because again, you're fighting a war and an you know, on an idea that has bonded this group of people. So that, that also makes it different. I would also recommend in terms of resources, just from an educator's point of view, and I, I do think this book would be appropriate for upper high school as well, but there's a book that we all uh, read when we joined uh, the team. It's um, called Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright. I know they made it into a mini series for Hulu, but I highly recommend that book because if you, to, to take what Jen said so eloquently and succinctly to really dive in and understand 
how, why the intelligence agencies weren't communicating, the rise of Osama bin Laden, all of those the, the points that Jen um, was mentioning are laid out very well by Lawrence Wright in this book. So again, it's called Looming Tower, and it's definitely something that we recommend to educators who are teaching this, this topic. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, so Megan, I want to kind of come back to you and just sort of talk about what are some of um, the mistakes that teachers can avoid when teaching about 9-11? It's something that we, it's kind of a question we ask almost every episode when we have a really complicated topic like this. Um, if we're teaching about 9-11 uh, and um, even the war on terror, what are some mistakes that we can avoid as educators in the classroom? Sure, I think you know, the, one of the mistakes that um, I, I think happens a lot, and I, and I completely understand why as a fellow educator, is, is almost not teaching the content at all. Like, to, you know, to your point about how it's so complex and so challenging, and there are so many other things coming at educators, especially at the beginning of a year. I mean, you're talking about not knowing your students very well, and then 9-11 happens, and, and so we've heard this, that sometimes, you know, educators feel so overwhelmed by the content or they don't want to upset anyone that sometimes it can be um, avoided. And again, I can completely, I think Jen would agree, we can understand where that feeling would come from, but I think a mistake would be not to do it. Um, and I think it's also, you know, important to do your homework. And I, I mean this, in the sense that if we don't do our homework, right, if we don't take those steps, um, then there can be negative consequences. So for example, something that's come up in conversation with educators in our professional development workshops is this idea of, you know, conflating a religion practiced by over a billion people and, and leading to, um, you know, this, this idea that, oh, all, you know, all Muslims are terrorists, which was completely false and untrue. Right, and so it's very important that we're using the correct language. Islamist extremist, for example, and you're talking about what that means. That means that very fundamentalist point of view. And we have a great um, actual uh, a diagram that shows in perspective with circles, a very large circle representing Islam. And then the circles get smaller and smaller and smaller until it's almost like the point of a pen. And that is, where Al-Qaeda would fit within. So if we're not doing our homework and we're not using the correct vocabulary, then there can be negative consequences. And I would also say, again, a mistake with not teaching it at all is that you know the classroom is the place for these types of difficult discussions, right? And I think what can happen is if those difficult conversations do not happen in the classroom, then they're going to happen somewhere else. Right, and that can potentially lead, right? Not always, but potentially can lead to misinformation. So I think that um, you know this is an incredibly complex history, and it's very challenging. And that's where Jen and I and our other colleagues come in. This is where we can support educators. That's what we're here to do to help to say, okay, yes, let's all agree that this is really hard and this is really challenging. Here's what we can do to help you. And that's where our online and digital resources come into play, our professional development workshops come into play. And I think, um, you know, those, those mistakes can be avoided by using the resources, for example, that we have to support education um, in the classroom. Yeah, and I want to talk about some of those resources um, in just a few minutes. And I think that the work that you all are doing at the museum is, so, so incredibly important. And I think you're right. You know, it, it is a mistake to not teach it, um, especially because it is so present. You know, I mean, it really is just so recent, but it also is so present right now um, with everything going on in Afghanistan. But also it's such a symbolic event too, to show just how um, 
America as a country can react to things that happen that are like this. Um, it's a very um, prescient learning opportunity, I think, for students to look at what we did as a country right and what we did wrong. One of the things, obviously, that we as a country um, could have done better was not placing um, all Muslim Americans or all Muslims into one particular category um, and as, you know, terrorists. And I think that that's something that happened immediately after 9-11 and was very much lingering in the thoughts of many Americans afterwards just because of ignorance. And I think that that's, you know, the job of educators is to try to dispel um, those misconceptions in the classroom. Um, so Jen, one of the taglines that I think all of us can kind of recall coming out of 9-11 is never forget. And, you know, I was looking at the museum and the website, which is beautiful, by the way, um, if you haven't been on the museum's website, it is amazing. Um, and there kind of does seem to be this sense, even on the website, that preserving the memory of the event is really crucial for the healing process um, of us as a nation. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that. Like what at museum are you all doing to make sure that we as a nation sort of never forget that 9-11 happened? Sure, and it's certainly something that I think is ever more pressing with the passage of time. Again, this gulf that sometimes I think a challenge for educators can be wading into that gulf that exists between history and memory and the way that you connect to an event when it's part of your visceral lived experience versus something that is fully, you have the benefit of the distance of history to look at it and our students do. And um, frankly, in just a year or two, our new colleagues hitting the classrooms will also not share that lived memory. So, you know, we can't count on just the understanding, the implicit understanding that came through living it to carry it forward. And of course, I suppose this could be said about any historical, in really important historical event, but living through it, I think is eye-opening. It certainly is eye-opening for me as an educator to watch this pass from history to memory. Um, so I think what we do specifically when we engage with young people around this history, and this truly works for any historical period because you know, the same technique worked when I was teaching about New Amsterdam and the Dutch colonial, colonial presence in New York as it does with 9-11, which is to, in a real way, help students understand that history happened to people very similar to themselves, right? So how can we help students make concrete connections to how this impacts their life today, even 20 years later? And also, how can we bring out from the artifacts that we have and the testimony that we have, how can we connect personal stories, right? How can we leverage that first person voice to help make it real for students? Um, you know, it's super important, I think, also given the tragedy and the scale of 9 11, that when we're talking about victims, that they not just be remembered for the way in which they died. They need to be remembered for the unique people that they were. And I think that is something that resonates with young people always, right? The idea that you really wanna be honored as an individual, that is something they absolutely get. So something that we do is we focus really, we use the inquiry model to help engage students so that they're driving the car, they are focused on the artifact they're investigating. Um, but this actually does link to in terms of grounding that first person voice and finding connections for students that actually makes a connection to our largest resource we have. Um, and it's free too, which is great. Um, it's an annual program called Anniversary in the Schools, which it features uh, family members, first responders, survivors, and witnesses of 9-11 telling their first person story in a way that is super appropriate for students and they are inside the 9-11 Memorial Museum near artifacts that connect to their experience. Um, and something that we get feedback, you know, last year we had 340,000 students participate. Um, and we try to get as much feedback as we can and that informs the program. And something I think that's very important because this 20th anniversary is really marking that history being put in the hands of the next generation is that this year, three of our speakers were themselves 10 years old on 9-11. So you are hearing the history, students are hearing the history 
from those who were their age, who were literally in their shoes on 9-11, so that they can hear, you know, like one of our speakers, Carlton Shelley, talks through how it was really hard for him to wrap his brain around what was happening. He says it's really hard for a fifth grader to conceptualize all of this that he was seeing. And so I think hearing an adult speak to them on their level is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that can really make everything feel much closer to them. Um, and I think what you said too about just, you know, honoring the individual definitely does resonate with kids. You know, um, I think that's something that all of them, you know, are seeking to be recognized as individuals themselves and going through that um, growing process and personality development. And so just hearing that, I think really does, you know, touch on something that they can really connect with really intimately. So Jen, what were some of the effects of 9-11? We've talked about the causes um, and what happened afterwards. Uh, what were some of the major impacts of this event um, in American history? Well, of course, some of the impacts are swift and instantaneous, and some of them, frankly, are still unfolding even 20 years later. This is something that actually, when Megan and I started at the museum and I got to collaborate with her on our original school programs, we were writing them before there were ever kids even in the museum. Um, we started to really think about like, oh, how can we help them understand this post 9-11 world? Um, and we realized, oh, right, to them, that's the world. How do we help them understand pre 9-11? So I think one of the, and one of the effects that students are more poised than ever to understand, they no longer, after navigating the year that they have had, they understand how a moment of national crisis can forever change your sense of safety, your sense of community, and your sense of self. And I would say this is one of the most immediate and powerful effects of 9-11 is that, you know, I certainly can recall before 9-11 feeling that things like the World Trade Center attacks, things like that didn't happen here. They happened elsewhere. Having this sort of implicit sense of safety that it no longer exists after 9-11. And I think a lot of the sort of, there's a lot of changes that flow from that. Um, you know, uh, the if you look at the, how quickly sort of and relatively unanimously the Patriot Act was passed, um, that gives you a sense of that swift, we would like to, in that balancing civil liberties and national security, the balance becoming, we would really like to feel safe. We're putting this privacy on safety or the forming of the TSA, obviously, which didn't exist um, prior to 9-11, um, Homeland Security. Uh, and so it, in terms of ones that are still unfolding, of course, and it does also link back to COVID-19, a lot of our 9-11 community is incredibly vulnerable because of the exposures that they received working at the site, you know, and there are still communities of people especially young people. I'm thinking of one of our previous webinar speakers who actually, we have a whole archive of all of our past speakers. One of our past speakers, Lila Nordstrom, was a student at Stuyvesant High School. So she was just blocks from the World Trade Center. And she's been an advocate to get young people protected, which they are by the World Trade now, but they weren't initially by the World Trade Center Health Program because there are conditions and cancers that don't manifest until now and beyond. So we're not even yet seeing the full potential health impacts that 9-11 could have on some communities, especially Lila and I are the same age, you know, so uh, people who were in high school in 9-11, they may not, some of her classmates are having severe health impacts and some of them need to be monitored because that may not come up for another decade. So it's, it's the effects of 9-11 are still very much being written. And I think, you know, what you were saying too, is these, these kids that are in class right now can definitely resonate with a collective national trauma more than any other group of kids. Um, I think since 9-11, I think that what you're saying about the pandemic and how it has you know, so swiftly um, impacted both education, but also we've seen sort of very, um, very 
immediate impacts in terms of policies too that are being passed as a result of the pandemic that we wouldn't normally see happen um, maybe across the aisle um, as quickly were it not an actual crisis. And so what you were saying too, you know, with like the Patriot Act being passed so quickly um, after 9-11 and this priority being given, you know, if our national values, our life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's like life is first in that. And, you know, prioritizing that almost over liberty in a way um, is really a immediate reaction in a time of crisis. You know, and I would say too, something interesting that's happened just anecdotally is that we've always got, um, you know, students have always asked us questions about, you know, did you know someone who was impacted by 9-11 or, do, do you, what's your memory of it? But what we've seen this year is an increase in questions around, you know, our personal stories and when we felt safe again, you know, sort of when did you feel safe again? Or what was it like living through such a scary time, you know, and it doesn't matter if we're talking to third graders or, you know, 12th graders. And, and I think that's because of what we've just been talking about, that they are now living in this time of incredible uncertainty and the world has completely changed. And it's, it's almost as though they want to hear from people who were young at that time to know that there is a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel or there is you know, a way to survive and move on in the face of unimaginable tragedy. And I think that you know, the personal stories from 9-11 can make that connection as well, that, you know, that you can survive, you can heal, but it's also okay to, to grieve and be sad and be scared. Those are all okay. Um, and so I think that those are, that's sort of why we're getting more of those questions, the more personal type of questions than the more, you know, what happened on 9-11, how tall were the buildings, those types of questions, which I have just found very interesting as we've gone through the last 18 months. Yeah, I mean, I remember even in 2008, I I was, we were really late to fly on airplanes in my family, but like I flew on an airplane for the first time and went to New York City. And I remember thinking even in 2008, that's seven years later, I remember being really nervous and having, you know, an incredible sense of anxiety about flying into New York City. And, you know, that's just how present that was even seven years later. And I think that there is, you know, definitely um, a healing process that everybody's going to have to go through after we eventually come out of this. But like you said, Megan, it's so helpful for the kids to know that like there is an afterwards, you know, like there is an after. Um, and so obviously one of the major effects of 9-11 is uh, the United States engagement in the war in Afghanistan. It's made headlines recently all over again with the Taliban takeover of Kabul and recently too with the, um, the attacks on the Kabul airport um, and the U.S. withdrawal of troops. Um, I'm wondering if you could just talk us through, Megan, how did 9-11 impact U.S. foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East? Sure. So you have to go back again to that question of, you know, why was the United States attacked in the first place? So, so for context, Al-Qaeda, as we talked about, was the Islamist extremist terrorist network that perpetrated the attacks. They were based in Afghanistan. Um, and again, their aim has always been to overthrow governments in the Middle East, like we talked about, that we're not adhering to their very strict and fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. And any country that um, was not upholding those ideals or any country that supported those governments, right? So attacks against the United States were intended to reduce our support for many of those governments. Um, because we were seen by Al-Qaeda as a major obstacle, and it was also deeply, deeply offensive in particular to Osama bin Laden for us to, the United States, to be in the holiest of lands. So they operated training camps in Al-Qaeda, they recruited, I'm sorry, in Afghanistan, they openly lived in Afghanistan with the support of the Taliban, which again is an <clears throat> Islamist group that ruled the country in the late 1990s, and is now, again, has taken control of Kabul and the majority of the major cities, <clears throat> excuse me, in Afghanistan. So that was the basis 
for the speech um, in on September 20th, 2001, when then President George W. Bush asserted, and I'll quote him here, that any nation that continues to harbor or support terrorism will be regarded by the United States as a hostile regime. So this is an important quote to consider because there's no distinction made between the harboring state and the terrorists that are that they're harboring. So there isn't a difference, for example, between the Taliban and Al Qaeda in this instant because the Taliban is the ruling party of that country. So that's important to understand um, and will help kind of explain what's happening today. So when the United States uh, demanded that they hand over Osama bin Laden and the terrorists and you know shut down the training camps and they refused, that's when Operation Enduring Freedom was officially launched beginning October 7th, 2001. And that's less than a month you know, after the attacks. So I think that what's happening now, what we're seeing is an example of what Jen was talking about earlier in terms of understanding that what happened 20 years ago is still affecting the world we live in today and is a, will continue to affect the world that they will inherit as the next generation. And I'm sure many of them don't understand that you know, we have been at war almost their entire lives. And on top of that, not understanding that 9-11 was that moment that led to this 20-year war. It was what happened on that Tuesday morning that has led to, you know, that led to the war in Afghanistan and what they're seeing now as we leave, you know, 20 years later. And I also think too that it's an example of, you know, the thought of, of this being approved almost unanimously by both houses of Congress now seems like that would be impossible to agree on anything on that, you know, on that level. But it demonstrates the powerful psychological and emotional shift that we've been talking about in the face of 9-11. So right after that, we were so jolted by that. There was so much fear that you know what seemed to be almost impossible uh, became possible with both houses of Congress almost immediately, um, both supporting um, the operation. So this is again a really you know unfortunate uh, but a, a teachable moment to to explain how 9/11 continues to impact the world today. So in our last few minutes here, Jen and Megan, either one of you can go first. I, I just kind of want to talk about some of your digital resources. Do the, do the, sorry, I can't talk. Due to the pandemic, <laughs> it's unlikely that our Virginia teachers will be able to bring any students to the 9-11 museum this year, which is such a shame. Um, so what are some of your favorite digital resources that the museum offers to teachers um, online? Well, um, I, we have so many that I, I have to say, I'm so, so proud of, of Jen and the team and all of us for being able to come together to figure out what we were going to do to support educators in that new world. Um, the way we all had to, right? We all had to sort of start from scratch. So I would say um, the very first digital program we ever did, though, was the program that Jen referred to earlier called Anniversary in the Schools. And I would say that this you know, this program is something that brings both the personal stories to classrooms around the world, but also this, again, message of the importance of remembering 9-11 and why it matters, not telling students why it matters, they discover for themselves why it's important by connecting with people they may have never had the opportunity to meet. So for example, um, right now we have um, the webinar scheduled for Friday, September 10th. And it consists of two parts. So the first part is a pre-recorded film. It's about 35 minutes and it features six speakers this year, which is the most we've ever had. And it is first responders and family members and survivors and young people on 9-11 sharing their stories. And then there's a second part, which is really great. It's our live chat. So the idea is while students are watching this to, with their um, classes, they can ask us, like meaning me, 
Jen, 16 of our colleagues, they can ask us questions about 9-11, much the same way you have been. So they can click on the little chat bubble, type in their question, and we will have a conversation and respond to them in real time. And this is to support the students, but also the educators. Going back to that point I made earlier, that's a lot of questions and a lot of things to explain in one day very early on in the school year. So we're able to take that pressure off of the educator and have a conversation with their students live, which is really wonderful. And I'm, I'm very excited to say that in the five years we've done this, we've reached over a million students and we're on track to, we're, we, we're at the point now where we have almost 500,000 registered for this year, which shatters any record we've ever had in the past. Um, it's a completely free program. There's no charge, no cost. And we also provide viewing guides by grade level. We have lesson plans, pre and post webinar activities. So it's a whole suite that we offer. Um, and once it goes live, it's on demand. So you can play it multiple times, rewind, fast forward, and it will be on our website for the entire month. But the live chat will be on the 10th and the 11th. And I will say that, you know, Jen mentioned Carlton Shelley as one of our speakers. Another speaker that I think will really resonate with students this year is a woman named Brielle Saracini. Her father uh, was the pilot whose plane struck the South Tower. She was 10 years old. And she talks about how hard it is to grieve publicly and make sense of tragedy when you're that age. But I think that her message is so important because there are two things she really highlights. One is the power of healing. She actually went to a camp called Camp Better Days, which was set up after 9-11 to support young people who had lost a loved one. And it's at that camp where she's playing basketball and playing pool that she meets a young man named Sean McGuire, whose father was killed in the South Tower. And they fall in love and they got married in September of 2017. And she talks about how they're able to find their silver lining by this event bringing them together. And it was this idea of community that helped her heal. And she also talks about the importance of sharing her father's story and her story, which she doesn't share often publicly, but she did it for exactly what we were talking about today. She said that it's important. Everyone has a story and everyone's story is important. And I'm sharing my story so that people understand that the people who were killed that day had families and they had friends and they're not just people that are now written about in a history textbook. And I couldn't think of a better way to stress the importance of teaching this content 20 years later. And that's just one of six stories that will be featured in this program. Amazing. I cannot wait to register for that. And Jen, do you want to talk about our virtual field trips? I almost oh, forgot. Sure. Yeah. And I will say though, even the, the layer, one layer to the webinar, the only one that Megan didn't bring up yet that I also love is we love making it accessible to as many people as possible. So it's available with captions, ASL interpretation, Spanish subtitles, and verbal description if your students have low vision. So really trying to reach as many people as possible. Um, but we also, uh, because we understand that Virginia educators are not alone in likely not maybe being able to come to the museum this year, we're keeping a really robust virtual field trip program going throughout the fall. So we will bring your students inside through the magic of Zoom. Um, and it's our team. We're facilitating the tours and giving the content. And we go through the museum and try to give really robust three, you know, like 360 degree views of the artifacts so that the kids can get as close as they possibly can to feeling like they're in the space. So those are also, you know, available on our uh, website. And we also have a new program that I'm super excited about. We started it last spring called Ask an Educator, which is essentially our version of a Reddit AMA. So you can sign up and for 30 minutes, your students can ask us literally anything. So again, just another way to take pressure off the teachers. If you feel like you don't know how to answer a question about 9-11, come, come find us. We will help you answer that question. Or if we don't know the answer, we're going to help your students find it. The last thing I'll mention is our virtual professional development series. So we also offer free professional development um, opportunities over Zoom. Um, and we also have something new this year. In addition to our lesson plans, which we've talked about, 
It's called the 9-11 Primer in the resources section of our website, and it aggregates public program clips, um, webinars, speakers, lesson plans, primary sources, all of the things that you will need to teach 9-11 broken down into six thematic themes. So I would definitely check that out as well. And the last thing I'll mention is we also have a free poster exhibition that you can download and put in your classroom. Um, and it's funded by an NEH grant. We partnered with the American Library Association. So again, free resource you can register for on our website. And, and if you pair the webinar with the exhibit, there's a really, there's a really you know, powerful program and, and lesson plan built in right there. Awesome. So much good stuff. And we love the NEH. Um, we are big NEH fans over here at VCSS. Um, is there anything else that, you know, I missed or that you wanted to highlight in these last couple of minutes here that we have together? I mean, I think just um, hmm. the only advice that I would give to anybody who is thinking about teaching 9-11 for the first time, or maybe you're a little nervous, is don't be afraid. This is so hard. It's hard for teachers. It's hard for parents. It's hard for human beings. <laughs> don't be afraid. If you don't know the answer to something, say, I don't know, and model searching for that information for your students through credible sources. And hopefully, because assess, especially the 9-11 primer, because that is, we have created so many disparate digital resources that are awesome and our exhibitions team came in and supported us and pulled them into a one-stop shop that's a place where you're going to be able to find a lot of answers to those questions but like please if i could offer a bit of advice don't put pressure on yourself to know the answer to everything and it can be really powerful to model saying you know what i don't know but let's go find a credible source to answer that question and i would just say thank you to every educator listening to this and for the work that you do every day and trying to tackle this difficult content on top of everything else, the respect that we all have for what you do, we appreciate. And everything we do in our programs is to help you and to support you. And so I would just say, thank you for you know bringing these stories to your students. I think the best thing that we often get asked, what can we do to you know, honor 9-11 or what can my students do? And one of the simplest things to do, if you learn the story of someone, so if you participate in the webinar and you learn the story of Victor J. Saracini, share that story with your family or your friends when you get home. That is really just a beautiful way to make sure that this history is never forgotten, is to simply share the story. Mm, that's such a lovely note to end on. Um, Megan Jones and Jen Lagasse, um, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we appreciate you so much taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule. This is such a busy month and year for you both. Um, we just love this conversation and I know our teachers are going to be just clambering over each other to register for these events and to access all of your resources online. So I really appreciate it. Well, we can't wait to meet them, you know, virtually. And <laughs> it'll be great. We teachers, we love them. We want to support them. We're here for you. So, you know, if there are resources that teachers find that they're wanting, and they're needing, then we would love to hear that feedback so that we can support them as they continue to confront challenges in the classroom. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much again. Uh, and listeners, don't forget to go and follow Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you like today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. We will see you next time on Content to Classroom.